Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, or welcome to the Hemingway List podcast if it's your first time, if you're a newbie, because we are merging with a year of war and peace. We're taking over the joint, and um, well, I think this is going to be the biggest year of war and peace so far, and that's very exciting. Today we're going to be kicking off by just reading the first chapter. Before we do that, um, I think without any spoilers, obviously, I'd like to talk about the context of where chapter one starts. Um, shortly after this podcast goes up, probably about an hour later, I'm going to jump on my YouTube live stream on the Launchpad Writers Club YouTube channel, and I'm going to start my project. For those who don't know what my project is, I am translating War and Peace into Aussie slang. And my New Year's resolution, on top of doing this daily podcast, a different thing I'm going to be doing is attempting to finish this project. I want to translate the whole novel. Um, I've already done book one. That's already out there. And I'm uh, just getting stuck into book two. So I figured if I'm going to be working on this every day, it's a kind of a cool opportunity to create a bit of a hangout space. Open the door for all the people from the Hemingway list and A Year of War and Peace to come and hang out and just talk books, talk about War and Peace, uh, talk about your creative projects if you've got some going on, and just sort of hang out while I work on my project of my uh, translation. So that's what I'm going to do. Launchpad Writers Club on YouTube in about an hour. Um, that also... Uh, begs the question, which I haven't answered yet. I've been asking this for a little while and I still haven't really figured it out, but I guess I'm going to have to figure it out right now of uh, which version should I read? It's going to be either the Maud translation, which I really love the Maud translation, uh, and the reason that that's one of the two candidates is because it is very good and it's also uh, in the public domain, so I can read it without infringing any copyright. The other option is, do I read my translation, my Aussie slang translation? Um, it doesn't, so far, it hasn't come up in the conversation of like, which translation should I read? Yesterday, there was a post on the Year of War and Peace subreddit of like, which is the best translation to read? And I was disappointed, but I also completely understand that my translation wasn't in the running. Like it's... Um, like it's a spoof translation or something, but that's okay because it's brand new and it does seem kind of goofy. And it, it's definitely not the most um, kind of authentic translation because there's some kind of Aussie slang and it makes it a bit funny. But I will say this, it's all there. It's a line for line translation. And every single thing that happens in every single line of War and Peace is in my translation. So if you've read my version you can say you've read War and Peace. You won't have missed anything. The only thing you'll gain is the fact that it's a little bit funny here and there. And I'm hoping you get one or two laughs per chapter. And with 365 chapters, that's a lot of laughs. And um, I don't know. I don't feel like, yes, that makes it slightly less authentic because Tolstoy never put any laughs in his. But it doesn't take anything away from the original other than that slight bit of authenticity, it only adds everything's there plus a little bit of humor. You know, I think it's a pretty valid candidate. But, you know, only book one of 16 books is out. Uh, and 
I can see why it didn't come up as, as one in the running. But here's what you know. Here's what I think I'll do for day one. Um, I'll read you Maud. Should I just read both? No, that's a long. It's it's hmm, it's going to take too long to read both. I'll read the first page of Maud, and then I'll read the first page or two of my one, and you can have a direct comparison. But I think we'll do Maud for day one, just so that it's um. Everyone's kind of, you know, on the same page, so to speak. Because Maud is the version that you can get for free online. Um, you don't need a lot of context to start War and Peace. You do need a lot of context as you go through it. You have a lot of questions. But to start with, you need to know the year is 1805. And that's about 50-odd years before the book was written. So he's reflecting back on history, um, even though he's doing that from, you know, the mid-1800s. Um, so that's why it's sort of thought of as a historical novel. Um, in uh, a few years, in I think it's 18, uh, I don't know, a few years after the start of the book is when Napoleon invaded um, Russia. And so that's kind of the what the book is about, Napoleon's invasion. Uh, but obviously there's you know a lot of context to build around that so we start a few years earlier um so i mean that's all historically you know what happened so there's kind of no spoilers to say what happened when he attempted to invade russia but also i don't want to go too far into it because you know it, it kind of is a spoiler even though it's a piece of history um what else? Although, you know, it was written as a historical novel, so it's kind of assumed that everyone knows what happened. The other thing that I didn't really get my head around the first time I read War and Peace was um, just the scale of the grandiosity of these people. So we're with high society in Russia, super high society, the top of the top of the top, you know. And I kind of had a picture in my head of what that would be. You know, I knew it was posh, don't get me wrong. But like the houses and the grand um, like sitting rooms and drawing rooms and all these things uh, that I was picturing was a tenth of what it needed to be. Like I needed to times these mansions in my head by about 10 and the grandiosity of it all. Um, when I was about, I don't know, maybe eight months into the book, I was, you know, fair way through it, more than halfway. I watched the BBC series or the first few episodes so that I didn't sort of overtake where I was up to in the book. And that was when I kind of went, oh, that's, they're that rich. Okay. And it, I had to sort of re-picture it all in my head. So I did wish that from the start I could have had a, a clearer picture like that. Um, one thing Tolstoy does, he really puts you in the moment with the people in the place but the settings, the descriptions of the settings is not that vivid, I found at least, and at least with Maud, you know. It was, it, like I said, yeah, I had to watch the TV show before I had a clear picture of what to imagine for settings-wise. Um, so, I think that's, you know, I think that's all we really need to start off with. Just that. And after this chapter, if it's your first time, you will have questions, but that's what the daily discussion's for. So, anything you don't understand, 
um, pop over to the comments in the discussion forum and let's have a chat about it. And even if you don't have a question, if you just go there and read through what everyone else thinks, you will identify more that you didn't pick up on on your reading. Um, oh, and one other thing. This is interesting. There's a lot of French in this book. And I'm going to obviously be reading the French in English, translation in English, because the Maud version does translate it into English sort of in the text. Other versions have it in French and then as a subnote have it in English. Um, and people say that's more authentic, but I can't speak or read French. So it's just kind of annoying to have to skip a paragraph, go down to the bottom of the page, read the paragraph there, go back up. It's like if I could read French, yeah, that would be good, but I can't. So it's just kind of annoying to have it that way. So I actually prefer the way Maud did it with just um, saying, you know, he said in French and then having it in English. Oh, yeah. So the reason there's so much French is because, and I found this interesting to note, the Russians in the aristocracy, the really posh ones, once you got posh enough you kind of forgot how to speak Russian. It was like Russian was the language of the plebs and everyone in the super posh part spoke French. And so it's interesting to note how much French there is. All right, I think, I think let's get stuck into it and read chapter one. Uh, and it goes like this. Well, Prince, so Genoa and Luca are now just family estates of the Bonapartes. But I warn you, if you don't tell me that this means war, if you try still to defend the infamies and horrors of perpetrated by that Antichrist, I really believe he is Antichrist, I will have nothing more to do with you, and you are no longer my friend, no longer my faithful slave, as you call yourself. But how do you do? I see I have frightened you. Sit down and tell me all the news. It was July 1805, and the speaker was the well-known Anna Pavlovna Scherer, maid of honour and favourite of the Empress Maya Fedorovna. With these words, she greeted Prince Vasily Kuragin, a man of high rank and importance, who was the first to arrive at her reception. Anna Pavlovna had had a cough for some days. She was, as she said, suffering from la gripe, Gripe being the then a new word in St. Petersburg, used only by the elite. <laughs> I tried to say St. Petersburg, then I think I said St. Petersburg. Um, gripe being the gripe being then a new word in St. Petersburg, used only by the elite. All her invitations, without exception, written in French and delivered by a scarlet liveried footman that morning, ran as follows. If you have nothing better to do, count or prince, and if the prospect of spending an evening with a poor invalid is not too terrible, I shall be very charmed to see you tonight between seven and ten. Signed, Anna. Annette Chereau. Heavens, what a virulent attack, replied the prince not in the least disconcerted by this reception. He had just entered wearing an embroidered court uniform, knee breeches and shoes, and had stars on his breast and a serene expression on his flat face. He spoke in that refined French in which our grandfathers not only spoke, but thought, and with the gentle patronising intonation natural to a man of importance, he had grown old in society, who had grown old in society and at court. 
He went up to Anna Pavlovna, kissed her hand, presenting to her his bald, scented and shining head, and complacently seated himself on the sofa. You know what I might do here is pause and go back to the start and just read from the start up to there in my translation for a bit of a direct comparison. Bloody hell, Prince Vasily. Genoa and Luca are pretty much just Napoleon's holiday homes now. I'm warning you, if you still reckon Napoleon is an alright bloke, if you still don't reckon this means he wants a fight, if you try to defend that mad bastard, who I reckon is pretty much the devil, well, then you can bugger off. We're not mates anymore, but oi, come in, come in. I'm just messing with you, mate. Sit down. How are you, anyway? It was July 18th, and it was the well-known Anna Pavlovna Scherer speaking, maid of honour and favourite of the Empress Maya Fedorovna. The guy she was talking to was Prince Vasily, who was a pretty big deal, rank-wise. He was the first to rock up to her soiree. Anna Pavlovna had been crook for a few days, suffering from la gripe, as she called it, because gripe was a new fandangle word in St. Petersburg, and she was trying to be as posh as possible. She had written all the invitations in French, again to be posh, and had them delivered by footmen in fancy scarlet uniforms that morning. They read, If you've got nothing else to do, Count or Prince, and if you don't mind hanging out with someone who's on the way out, I'd be happy to see you tonight between 7 and 10. Annette Chereau. Jesus, go easy, mate, replied the Prince, though he wasn't actually bothered by her attack. He had just been... He had just entered wearing an embroidered court uniform, knee breeches and shoes and stars on his breast. Already he looked kind of bored. He spoke in that refined French that our grandfathers not only spoke but thought in, and with the gentle patronising intonation natural to an important man who'd grown old in society and at court. He approached Anna, took her hand and gave it a kiss. She smelled the scented polish from his bald head as he did, and then moved to the sofa and took a seat. All right, let's have it. Are you good? You said you were sick. I was worried about you, he said, without bothering to change his tone to actually sound concerned. All right, there we go. There's a bit of Aussie. I went slightly. I went one line further. Um, so there's your comparison. The same stuff's happening, um, and uh, it's just... I, I feel like it's easier to understand... Everything's still there. So, if you're interested, War and Peace, Bogan Translation, book one, is available on uh, Amazon and Kindle. Just look up Ander Lewis, War and Peace. You'll find it. Okay. I'll go back to Maud now and continue reading. First of all, dear friend, tell me how you are. Set your friend's mind at rest, said he, without altering his tone, beneath the politeness and affected sympathy of which indifference and even irony could be discerned. Can one be well while suffering morally? Can one be calm in times like these if one has any feeling? said Anna Pavlovna. You are staying the whole evening, I hope. And the fate of the English ambassadors? Today is Wednesday. I must put in an appearance there, said the prince. My daughter is coming for me to take me there. I thought today's fate had been cancelled. I confess, all these festivities and fireworks are becoming wearisome. If they had known that you wished it, the entertainment would have been put off, said the prince, who, like a wound-up clock, by force of habit, said things he did not even wish to believe. 
Don't tease. And what has been decided about Novosultev's dispatch? You know everything. Oh, what can one say about it? replied the prince in a cold, listless tone. What has been decided? They have decided that Bonaparte has burned his boats, and I believe that we are ready to burn ours. Prince Vasily always spoke languidly, like an actor repeating a stale part. Anna Pavlovna Scherer, on the contrary, despite her forty years, overflowed with animation and impulsiveness. To be an enthusiast had become her social vocation, and sometimes, even when she did not feel like it, she became enthusiastic in order not to disappoint the expectations of those who knew her. The subdued smile, which, though it did not suit her faded features, always played around her lips, expressed, as in a spoiled child, a continual consciousness of her charming defect, which she neither wished, nor could, nor considered it necessary to correct. In the midst of a conversation on political matters, Anna Pavlovna burst out, Oh, don't speak to me of Austria. Perhaps I don't understand things, but Austria has never wished, and does not wish, for war. She is betraying us. Russia alone must save Europe. Our gracious sovereign recognises his high vocation and will be true to it. That is the one thing I have faith in. Our good and wonderful sovereign has to perform the noblest role on earth, and he is so virtuous and noble that God will not forsake him. He will fulfil his vocation and crush the hydra of revolution which has become more terrible than ever in the person of this murderer and villain. We alone must avenge the blood of the just one whom, I ask you, can we rely on? England, with her commercial spirit, will not and cannot understand the Emperor Alexander's loftiness of soul. She has refused to evacuate Malta. She wanted to find, and still seeks, some secret motive in our actions. What answer did Novosiltev get? None. The English have not understood and cannot understand the self-abnegation of our emperor, who wants nothing for himself but only desires the good of mankind. And what have they promised? Nothing. And what will they have promised? And, sorry, and what little they have promised, they will not perform. Prussia has always declared that Bonaparte is invincible and that all Europe is powerless before him. And I don't believe a word that Hardenberg says. Or Horgwitz either. The famous Prussian neutrality is just a trap. I have faith only in God and the lofty destiny of our adored monarch. He will save Europe. She suddenly paused, smiling at her own impetuosity. I think, said the prince with a smile, that if you had been sent instead of our dear Windsor-Garode, you would have captured the King of Prussia's consent by assault. You are so eloquent. Will you give me a cup of tea? In a moment, a propos, she added, becoming calm again, I am expecting two very interesting men tonight. Le Vicomte de Mortemart, who is connected with the Montmorencys through the Rohans, one of the best French families. He is one of the genuine émigrés, the good ones. And also the Abe Morio. Do you know that profound thinker? He has been received by the Emperor. Had you heard? I shall be delighted to meet them, said the Prince. But tell me, he added with the studied carelessness, as if it had only just occurred to him, though the question he was about to ask was the chief motive of his visit, 
Is it true that the Dowager Empress wants Baron Funk to be appointed first secretary at Vienna? The Baron, by all accounts, is a poor creature. Prince Vasily wished to obtain this post for his son, but others were trying, through the Dowager Empress Maya Fedorovna, to secure it for the Baron. Anna Pavlovna almost closed her eyes to indicate that neither she nor anyone else had a right to criticise what the Empress desired or was pleased with. Baron Funk has been recommended to the Dowager Empress by her sister, was all she said in a dry and mournful tone. As she named the Empress, Anna Pavlovna's face suddenly assumed an expression of profound and sincere devotion and respect mingled with sadness, and this occurred every time she mentioned her illustrious patroness. She added that Her Majesty had deigned to show Baron Funk beaucoup d'esteem, and again her face clouded over with sadness. The prince was silent and looked indifferent, but with the womanly and courtier-like quickness and tact habitual to her, Anna Pavlovna wished both to rebuke him for daring to speak, as he had done, of a man recommended to the empress, and at the same time to console him. So, she said, Now, about your family, do you know that since your daughter came out, everyone has been enraptured by her? They say she is amazingly beautiful. The prince bowed to signify his respect and gratitude. I often think, she continued after a short pause, drawing nearer to the prince and smiling amiably at him as if to show the political and social topics were ended, and the time had come for intimate conversation. I often think how unfairly sometimes the joys of life are distributed. Why has fate given you two such splendid children? I don't speak of Anatoly, your youngest. I don't like him, she added in a tone, admitting of no rejoinder and raising her eyebrows. Two such charming children, and really you appreciate them less than anyone, and so you don't deserve to have them. And she smiled her ecstatic smile. Oh, I can't help it, said the prince. Lavater would have said I lack the bump of paternity. Don't joke. I mean to have a serious talk with you. Do you know I am dissatisfied with your younger son? Between ourselves, and her face assumed its melancholy expression, he was mentioned at Her Majesty's and you were pitied. The prince answered nothing, but she looked at him significantly, awaiting a reply. He frowned. What would you have me do? he said at last. You know I did all a father could for their education, and they have both turned out fools. Ippolit is at least a quiet fool, but Anatole is an active one. That is the only difference between them. He said this, smiling in a way more natural and animated than usual, so that the wrinkles around his mouth very clearly revealed something unexpectedly coarse and unpleasant. And why are children born to such men as you? If you were not a father, there would be nothing I could reproach with you, said Anna Pavlovna, looking up pensively. I am your faithful slave, and to you alone I confess that my children are the bane of my life. It is the cross I have to bear. That is how I explain it to myself. It can't be helped. He said no more, but expressed his resignation to cruel fate by a gesture. Anna Pavlovna meditated. Have you never thought of marrying your prodigal son, Anatole? she asked. They say old maids have a mania for matchmaking, and though I don't feel that weakness in myself as yet, I know a little person who is very unhappy with her father, 
She's a relation of yours, Princess Maya Bolkonskaya. Prince Vasily did not reply, though with the quickness of memory and perception befitting a man of the world, he indicated by a movement of the head that he was considering this information. Do you know, he said at last, evidently unable to check the sad current of his thoughts, that Anatole is costing me 40,000 rubles a year. And, he went on after a pause, what will it be in five years if he goes on like this? Presently, he added, that's what we fathers have to put up with. Is this princess of yours rich? Her father is very rich and stingy. He lives in the country. He is the well-known Prince Bolkonsky, who had the who had to retire from the army under the late emperor and was nicknamed the King of Prussia. He is very clever, but eccentric. And a bore. The good sorry, the poor girl is very unhappy. She has a brother, I think you know him. He married Lisa Minen lately. He's an aide de camp of Kutuzov's, and he'll be here tonight. Listen, dear Annette said the prince, suddenly taking Anna Pavlovna's hand and for some reason drawing it downwards. Arrange that affair for me, and I shall always be your most devoted slave. Slaif, with an F, as a village elder of mine writes in his reports. She is rich and of good family, and that's all I want. And with the familiarity and easy grace peculiar to him, he raised the maid of honour's hands to his lips, kissed it, and swung it to and fro as he lay back in his armchair, looking in another direction. Attenders, said Anna Pavlovna, reflecting. I'll speak to Lisa, young Bolkonsky's wife, this very evening, and perhaps the thing can be arranged. It shall be on your family's behalf that I start my apprenticeship as old maid. All right, there we go. First chapter done. Um, okay, so we'll give about 24 hours there to, um, to discuss that. I, I'm just, I, while I was reading, I was thinking, what should I do with my version so that you guys can have a comparison chapter? I think I'll, I'll post the entire first chapter in the comments as well so that you guys can compare and, um, see how I do it. <laughs> uh, all right. There's a lot to unpack there. We'll get stuck into it in the comments. I'll, um discuss it in the beginning of tomorrow's episode on the podcast and uh, by the time we start reading chapter two you should be well and truly across it and ready to proceed so if you're feeling a bit lost or daunted or some of that went over your head don't worry that's completely expected on day one chapter one but it will all make sense i promise you just stick with us all right thanks for listening i'll see you tomorrow Oh, and actually, by the way, don't forget, I'm going live on YouTube, Launchpad Writers Club YouTube channel, to uh, continue working on my Bogan War and Peace if you want to come and hang out and talk books. All right, see you soon.